978 in the Black Bibles. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name's Steve. I am the lead pastor here. This morning, we are continuing through Ephesians. If you're a guest with us, welcome. The way we approach preaching here at Trailhead is is we uh, pick a book and we work our way through it. And whatever comes up is what we preach. Um, And it's a great way to do it because it keeps us from kind of dodging tough issues like the one we have this morning. Um, This morning, we get to talk about the S word. Um, I'm talking about submission. We are in um, a a marriage series, and in this marriage series, um, we're exploring Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5 is an explanation of how roles work in marriage, how God has designed roles in, in marriage. And so this morning, we get to talk about submission. Now, before we jump into that, I want to remind you that coming up, we are hosting an event that we're inviting you to. The information is in your bulletin, okay? It's a, a real marriage um, vidcast with, with um, Mark Driscoll and, and Grace have been traveling for the last year and, and doing um, some great teaching um, to equip people to uh, just move more deeply into the blessings of marriage. And so this is a Friday, Friday night and Saturday morning. The dates and times are in your bulletin. We do need you to sign up. Um, and uh, there's sign up in the lobby, but also on the city. Guys, um, let me just encourage you again. Take the initiative. Don't wait for your wife to suggest it. This is a chance for you to invest into the intimacy and the joy, the oneness of your marriage. We're providing this event free of charge um, as a gift to our church and to the friends of our church so that you can explore this. If you're single and moving toward marriage and you want to explore more about what marriage is, is about and, and, and how you can prepare for it, this will, will be great for you as well. So put it on your calendar. Get babysitting if you need to get babysitting. If you want to make it a night out, um, make arrangements. Guys, <laughs> lead, okay? Um, uh, and and, and um, you guys invest, invest, okay? We want to be a church that doesn't just give lip service to valuing marriages. We want to be a church that invests into marriages. We want to be a church that's known for the quality of our relationships, right? Um, this is a gift that God has given us, and it takes a lot of work, a lot of humility, a lot of sacrifice, and honestly, a lot of believing the gospel to move into the fullness of this gift. And so I encourage you to, um, to move into that process. Okay. There's other announcements in here, by the way, as well, uh, including that members meeting, members and regular attenders meeting, um, which I highly encourage you to come to. It's going to be a Saturday morning. We have child care available, but you have to sign up <laughs> by a deadline, all right? So look in there, important information, a lot going on around here. All right, so this morning we are talking about submission, and this is not a popular topic for good reason. As I was preparing for this message, um, I spent a lot of time talking with and processing with my wife, Lauren, um, 
I find it fairly easy to call out men um, because I pretty much know how guys think. Uh, and I know where you're trying to wiggle out of responsibility and I have no problem nailing you down. A little bit more difficult, honestly, with a, to- a topic like this. And so I spent a lot of time with Lauren just processing um, how this has worked in our marriage and how it's worked in our relationship and, and the rest of that. And, and as we were talking our way through this, it was interesting. We were talking and, and Lauren opened up the laptop and just um, went to thesaurus.com. And, and she's like, you know what? She's like, I don't like the word submit. She's like, I get the concept, and, and, but I don't like the word. And she's like, I think this explains why. And she started reading a little bit about um, the word submit. The, the word submit is a hard word, especially in our culture. It's just not a very pleasant word, right? I mean, the only place that it's a positive thing, I think, is really MMA. Some of you guys watched the fights last night, right? And, and, and even there, it's not exactly the positive thing for the guy being forced into submission, right? Um, that's not pleasant, but it's always like, yeah, submission, right? But that's the only time you're going to hear people cheering for submission, right? Um, and, and so I want to throw some of these synonyms up here because I think this is reality. When I throw this word out there, as we go through the sermon and talk about this word submit, a lot of you, honestly, these are the ideas that are going into your head. So just look at the synonyms. This, was, this is from... The web, the thesaurus.com, the words that are supposed to mean the same thing. Things like bend, bow, buckle, capitulate, cave, concede, eat crow, fold, grin and bear it, say uncle. Stoop, surrender, toe the line. If you have a problem with the word submit, you're not alone. These are not pleasant ideas. And this is culturally our understanding of what it means to submit. So there's no wonder that we have a problem with it. There's no problem that we have a difficulty with this word, right? But today, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this word, and and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to redeem this word, because in the Bible, the word actually is a beautiful word, and it's a beautiful concept. If we understand it biblically, it's not degrading, it's not demeaning, it is a word full of dignity and power, because biblical submission is an expression of humble strength, not humiliated weakness. Biblical submission is an expression of humble strength, not humiliated weakness. And so I want to explore this idea of of what submission looks like in marriage uh, and, and how we're supposed to understand it. So we're going to begin by looking at the text. We're going to walk through this. I'll make a few comments as we go through the text. And then there are three principles that we're going to draw out of this to take a look at. All right, so take a look in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, to make it very clear what this doesn't say, this doesn't say women submit to men. It doesn't say women submit to all husbands. It says, you picked him. That's the one. Submit to him. Okay. This is not, the Bible does not endorse um, a a gender-based classism, right? Women are supposed to walk five feet behind men with their heads bowed, that they need to continually be deferring to all men. That is not the biblical teaching. 
Okay? It says very clearly that there is a role, a specific role that occurs in marriage that we're going to unpack a little bit. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's a really loaded phrase that we're going to unpack in the sermon, but let me just give you um, where we're going with it. It's not saying you need to submit to your husband as if he were God, right? You don't submit to your husband in all the ways you submit to God. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that God is the ultimate authority. So you submit first to God and then your husband. You submit to your husband as to the Lord, okay? So the Lord is the one who has genuine authority, not your husband. You submit to him, and then that frees you in submission in your role in marriage. We're going to talk about that. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. This is what we unpacked last week. Last week, I called out the dudes. Uh, and sadly, we had that file got corrupted. We weren't able to podcast it. I've had some people asking about that. Uh, we're not going to be able to post it. We lost it. Um, but just kind of the rundown. Essentially, what I did is, is we took this idea and said, what does it mean for a man to be the head in the marriage relationship? Well, essentially what it means is verse 25. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. What does it mean for a man to love, uh, be the head of his, his wife? It means to love his wife. It's not talking about positional authority. It's talking about relational authority. It's not that the, the, the dude is like, okay, I'm unquestioned. Look at me. It's that the dude is supposed to initiate and lead in the same way Christ initiated and led. Christ uh, exhibited a kind of love that was not based in emotion. It was based in his choice. It wasn't based because we provoked it. He didn't find us beautiful or irresistible, and therefore he died for us. He chose to love us, and in choosing to love us, he chose to act in our best interest. Husbands are called upon to act in that same kind of self-denying, self-giving love, and that's how they lead. They lead by initiating in love. They lead by laying down their lives for the good of their wives and the good of their families. Okay? So that's kind of what we unpacked last week, that, that husbands are in the marriage relationship supposed to image Christ. In the same way Christ laid down his life for the church, husbands are to lay down their wives, lives um, for their wives. In verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's where we're going today, this idea that husbands image Christ in the marriage relationship and, and wives have the unique privilege of imaging the church. In the way the church relates to Christ, wives are supposed to relate to their husbands. We'll unpack that more. But jump down to verse 33, which is um, everything in between was stuffed to, to the husbands. We're going to jump down to verse 33, where Paul gives a summary statement. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband, which is unique. Um, That's the third thing we're going to unpack is this idea. Consistently, Scripture calls men to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands, which is kind of weird, right? We would just, why isn't it just, hey, you guys love each other? You know, hey, married couple, love each other. You know, why, why this unique change in language where, where wives are called to respect their husbands and men are called to love their wives? We're going to unpack that, okay? So there are three concepts here, and we're going to go through all three of these, uh, but we're actually going to go through it in, in reverse order, okay? So we're going to begin with that idea of respect and love, and then we're going to talk about how um, wives image the church, and then we're going to talk about this idea of submitting to your husband as to the Lord. So let's talk about this language a little bit. It is interesting that Scripture is consistent, that we are called as husbands to love our wives. 
And wives are consistently called to respect their husbands. Why doesn't he just say, love each other? Right? Doesn't that just cover the bases? Why this unique change in language? I'm going to propose to you that it's because men and women are wired differently. And we have different needs in the marriage relationship. A man's deepest need in the marriage relationship is to be respected. And a wife's deepest need in the marriage relationship is to be loved and cherished. Now, wait a minute, Steve. Are you saying wives don't need to be respected? Absolutely not. I'm in no way saying that we, we, need to, we all need love, right? I mean, that's, one of the, that's the deepest human need. We were designed by the God of love to experience the outflow of his love, right? The deepest need we have is for love, and we all need respect. I'm not in any way trying to say these are exclusive. I'm saying it's a difference in emphasis. We were all created in the image of God, but we were all created differently in that image, right? God is a complex person, all right, we talked about this, that God is a trinity. He reveals himself as a father, son, and Holy Spirit. Three who's, one what, right? Eternal community, absolute unity, absolute diversity, right? Each individual is unique, but each individual is absolutely united and one with the other. We were created in the image of God, and none of us has the ability to image God on our own. For us to reflect both the unity and the diversity of God, we need community, God designed us to need each other for us to image God, to experience what it is to be created in His image. And He created that in a unique way in the marriage relationship. Now, I don't think I'm, I'm stepping out too far when I say it's pretty obvious men and women are different, right? I'm not, I'm not just talking biologically. I'm talking about the way we're wired, right? Anybody who's been married for more than five minutes knows that that becomes a source of conflict, right? I mean, we just think differently. We approach problems differently. We, 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 I mean, holy cow, we think about sex differently. I mean, all this stuff, and, and, and you're like scratching your head, looking at the, like, what are you thinking? How do you even process? I don't understand you, right? Men are from, from Mars and women from Venus. I mean, this has been an ongoing joke because we are wired uniquely. We both need to be loved, but in a unique way. Men need to be respected. Women need to be cherished. When men love their wives like Christ loved the church, they speak their wives' heart language. I've done a lot of marriage counseling. Um, Been married for 23 years um, and and have walked with people whose marriages have, have failed, walked with people whose marriages were in deep trouble and were saved, I've watched with people that, honestly, I looked at their marriage, and I'm like, I want what you have. You, you guys are doing something incredible. And what I find consistently through this is that one of the themes of success is that women need to know, need to know, that they are their husband's treasure. Not just that they're wanted, right, but that they're cherished. Now, women want to know they're wanted, too. But their deepest need is not simply to know that I physically meet a need for you I find, or you find me physically attractive. They want to know whether you find them truly beautiful, which goes way beyond how they look, right, to your eyes. It has to do with how you relate to their soul. Women want to know that they are your treasure. Right? Isn't, that what, isn't that what Jesus communicates to us? God loved us so much, he sent his son to die for us, even while we were in rebellion, even when we were walking away from him, even while we were at our ugliest, Jesus died for us. What does that tell our souls? You're loved. And not because of the way you perform, 
not because of what you do, but because I treasure you. I cherish you, right? Jesus told that parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a, a treasure that a man, bid, uh, a man found buried in a field and he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field and have that treasure. The most important thing, right? God speaks to our soul in that way and husbands are called to image that to their wives and communicate to their wives, I love you not because of what you do for me, not because of how you make me feel, not because it makes me happy. I love you because I covenanted together with you. I chose you. And when I covenanted together with you, I covenanted before God to love you unconditionally, to lay down my life for you, to sacrifice for you. I don't know of anything that is more romantic. The man who unconditionally treasures and delights in his wife more than his work, more than his ambition, more than his money, more than his hobbies, more than his toys, more than his distractions, right? Hearts, a wife's heart responds to that. Wives, now I'm speaking to you, your husbands need your respect. They need your respect. They are wired in such a way that they need you to believe in them. They need you to see in them the reflection of the true hero of the story. They need you to see in them who God is making them to be, not who they are in their failure. They need you to respect them. In the 1960s, um, during the, the women's movement and the feminist uh, movement, um, there was a phrase that became very popular, which has a lot of truth, and it was this, behind every great man is a great woman right? Behind every great man is a great woman. And that often has been, I think, used in wrong ways. Um, You know, I don't think what that means is that behind every successful man is a woman driving him with her secret ambition or manipulating him or changing him or somehow fixing him. That's not what it's about at all. I think this is true because behind every man who is becoming who God has created him to be is a woman who is bringing her strength to bear on his soul. She is bringing the strength of her respect and her love for him in such a way that it is empowering him to become who God has created him to be. She believes in him. She loves him and she expresses that by respecting him. Now, as I was processing this and trying to figure out how to explain it, honestly, I couldn't, I'm just going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about Lauren, my wife, um, which she hates, uh, but um, I, I think that, that I've just learned things from watching how we've grown up together and how we have learned um, to pursue oneness in, in the roles of marriage. There are a few people that know me like Lauren knows me. In fact, nobody knows me like Lauren knows me. She knows uh, my history like no one else knows it. She knows my weaknesses like no one else has, has seen them. Um, she has seen me lose it. She has seen me fail. She has seen me sob, and she has seen me scream. She has seen me act in pride 
and arrogance and anger and self-service. She has also seen me at my best. And one of the most beautiful things that she does for me is that she chose very early in our marriage relationship to see in me the man God was forming me to be. She chose to see me in the best light. She chose to see where God was taking me as opposed to focusing on everywhere I was falling short in that process. It's one of the greatest gifts she gave me. My wife believes in me. And her confidence in me, her respect of me empowers we got married, I was, we were engaged at 19, married at 20. I, was, I became a believer at 17 years old. I came from a broken home. I had no idea what it meant to be a man. I had no idea what it meant to be a husband. I didn't have those models. I didn't have those experiences. We had to discover those things together. And, and you got to know, guys, it was messy. It still is, okay? There's no textbook out there. You kind of have to just figure it out. You have to learn it. And one of the greatest gifts she gave me in that process was she chose to respect me. Lauren isn't much of a a words of affirmation person. Um, She doesn't receive them well. She doesn't like them. She doesn't like it when I praise her publicly. She doesn't like it when I tell, you know, that's not her thing. Uh, And and honestly, she's a little bit uncomfortable giving words of affirmation. I think that that's just not her her way of of doing things. But, But one of the things that I've learned is, is I don't need the words of affirmation because I can see it in her eyes. I can tell by the way she looks at me. I can tell by the way she touches my arm or holds my hand. I can tell by the tone in her voice. Ladies, you're giving off a million signals every minute and your husband is tuned in and receiving them all. You have to choose to Respect. We'll unpack that a little bit more, but one of the greatest gifts you can give your husband is, is to believe in him, to encourage him, to strengthen him. Ultimately, God has communicated to me his empowering grace through her. I've grown closer to God because of the way she has related to me. I'm, I'm far from a great man, but you have no idea how miserable a man I would be if Lauren had not been in my life. <laughs> it would have been ugly. Um, and as she does this, you guys, she is walking in her role in marriage. She is imaging the church and encouraging me to image Christ. So let's go back to verse 24 and take a look at that idea. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, so we get, it's a pretty simple concept here. In the way that the church submits to Christ, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, right? There's an essential question here, though, that we have to answer, and that is, what is the nature of the church's submission to Christ? How does the church submit to Christ? How does it work? Some people are going to be overly simplistic, and they're going to come to this text and say, well, I mean, the church has to simply do what Jesus says. He's the boss, right? And and since Jesus is the boss, uh, we just have to do whatever he says. So wives just have to do whatever their husbands say, right? And they would look at that little phrase right there at the end where it says, 
But look, it says right here, you have to submit in everything to your husband, right? If that's the way we approach this text, I want you to hear this. We're missing the point. We are missing the point because the focus here is not on positional authority. It's on relational authority. It's not on power. The focus is on relationship. How does the church submit to Christ? Well, let me ask you, follower of Christ, why do you submit to God? We use this phrase a lot, Christ follower, right? That idea of being a Christ follower means that he's leading and I'm following, that he has an authority to tell me where to go and I want to go there. Why do you do that, Christ follower? Is it because he's God and Jesus kind of just showed up and he was like, all right, I'm the boss, follow me. I'm the boss, you better do what I said. You better do it or I'm going to... No. If that's why you're following, I'm going to propose to you that you don't really know him at all. That's religion. That's not relationship. Um, That is not the church that I read about in the New Testament. That is not the Christian experience that I see explored as I read the Bible. You know why we follow Christ? We follow Christ because we love Christ and we want to be near him. You know why we obey Christ? Because we trust him. And we believe that he ultimately is going to lead us for our good. And so we learn progressively as Christ followers to bring our lives into full submission to God. Why? What is the nature of our submission? The nature of our submission is not simply um, a matter of what we do and don't do. It's an issue of our heart. We submit because we love. So is the church under the authority of Jesus? Absolutely. Does he get to give the church clear marching orders? Absolutely. But that's not why we follow. We don't follow simply because he's in a position of authority. We obey because we love. Jesus, in fact, told his disciples this very thing. He said, do you want to know the secret of of being my disciple? you want to know the secret of obeying me? You have to love me. That's what he said in the Gospel of John. He's talking to his disciples. He said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You really want to know what it means to follow me? You have to love me. You have to respond to my initiation of love towards you. See, that's what it means to follow him. As we look and we see a God, not not who has great authority, although that's true, we see a God of great love. We see a God who loved us so much that that he sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived. And as our substitute to die the death we deserve to die. Not because we earned it or deserved it or provoked it by our beauty, but because he chose to love us in spite of ourselves. And when he rose again to new life, he rose again to new identity and forgiveness for us. And when we believe in Jesus, we're forgiven of everything we've done wrong because Jesus was crushed for it. And we're given a new life because he's won it for us. And as we simply are undone, look at the beauty of that message. Look at the beauty of who God is and what he's done for us. We're filled with gratitude. And that gratitude spurs within us a love for him. And this brings us kind of to a general principle about relationship, you guys. All loving relationships require submission. All loving relationships will in some way demand submission. Isn't that true? If you love somebody, don't you in some ways have to submit yourself to them? You have to put your agenda aside. You have to stop trying to put yourself first. You have to stop trying to win your battles and accomplish your goals. To, to, to genuinely love somebody means to submit yourselves to them. And that's true for, for all relationships. To truly love one another, we have to stop fighting for our own rights. 
We have to stop asserting our own will. We have to stop making it a game that somebody is supposed to win. And instead, we submit ourselves to the process of moving more deeply into intimacy with the person that we love. And that's really what the roles in marriage are all about. Men and women must, must both submit if we're going to fulfill our roles in marriage, right? I mean, men are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. That requires them to submit, sometimes in painful ways, to Christ. For, for them to initiate in the marriage relationship like Christ initiated in the church means they have to learn to deny themselves. It means they have to learn how to put their interest on the back burner. It means that they have to stop putting themselves first. And they have to operate out of love for their wives and their families. They have to submit themselves to the call of God in their lives. To live in an unconditional, self-giving love. And women are called to submit to their husbands like the church does to Christ. To follow their husbands by training their hearts to respond in love to his pursuit. To foster a heart. that chooses to focus on what is good and healthy and beautiful instead of what's wrong and unhealthy and difficult. Women do this by choosing not to close their hearts to their husbands when their husbands fail or are insensitive or are just plain dumb. Women do this by choosing not to get self-righteous and indignant, right? Wives do this. They've been let down enough. The self-defense mechanism triggers, and it's very easy to start focusing on all the faults of your husband and feel very self-righteous in your condemnation of him, very superior to his weakness, very comfortable in your condemnation of his character, to respect your husband, to, to love your husband like Christ loves, like, like the church loves Christ, is, is, is not to focus on what makes him inadequate. It is to focus on Christ, the one who makes him adequate. And to love who Christ is making him to be. By loving their husbands like church loves Jesus, wives I want you to catch this, actually help their husbands become more like Jesus. Wives, sometimes you get caught in that trap of trying to fix your husband. We do this all relationally. It's not just husband and any husbands do it, wives do it, but, but addressing wives here. Wives, you know that there are times when you, you, you just desperately want to fix this thing. You know what manipulation is, right? Yeah? You well-versed in this thing? You know what manipulation is, right? The carrot and the stick? Right? I'll give you a reward if you do this thing, or I'll hit you if you don't. Right? Um, it's a way of bringing both pressure and heat. Right? Pressure and heat. Because what you're trying to do is ultimately get him to change something you want changed, to move in a direction you want him to move, to become something you want him to become. Right? You're trying to fix him. I want you to catch, you're actually trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit in his life but you're trying to do it in the power of the flesh. You're trying to use whatever skills, whatever tools you have at hand to fix his heart. You don't have the ability to do it. And in fact, you just mess it up. You hurt things. But at the same time, you tend to become self-righteous in your condemnation of his flaws. And so you don't even notice how you're hurting him. 
Wives, if you want to change your husband, you need to trust the one who can. And it's not you. You need to honor the one who has given you the gift of marriage, who is, in fact, redeeming and restoring both you and your husband and your marriage together. And if you want to know how to change your husband's heart, you need to partner with what the Spirit's already doing. Instead of trying to do what the Spirit is supposed to do, you partner with what the Spirit's already doing. The most powerful thing you can do to help change your husband's heart is respect your husband. By giving him the unconditional love of Christ, by respecting him, you're actually helping him to become more like Christ. You will give him an invitation. You will provoke him in positive and good ways. So I want you to see that when we talk about submission, it's really more about relationship than power. It's about influence, not command. And and submission is, in fact, not weakness, but strength. Humble strength exerted in appropriate and godly ways. All right, what about verse 22, though? Aren't wives called to, to, to approach and lay down their power to their husbands? Isn't that part of it? Take a look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, I want, I want to focus on this little phrase, as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This doesn't mean, and I mentioned this, but to make it clear, this doesn't mean that you submit to your husband as you would to God, as if he were God. He doesn't have that kind of authority in your life. Only God has that kind of authority. What it means is that in the same way you submit to God, you are to ultimately allow your submission to God to spill over into your submission to your husband. What it means is, is you know, we're not comparing your husband to God. We're pointing to God as the ultimate source of true authority. There are going to be times in your marriage relationship where you're going to disagree. I know that's a surprise. You're going to disagree, and there's still going to have to be a choice that's made, right? Have you ever been there yet, right? You're coming to the intersection. You're saying turn right. He's saying turn left, right? And it's usually whoever's got the wheel that gets to make the choice, right? Who gets to make the choice? Where, when, when you have two, uh, two um, unstoppable forces, you know, like I just am not going to change and I'm not going to change. Where, where do you go with that? In a situation like that, you guys, it's the husband's job to lead from a place of self-sacrifice and service. Not for self-motivated ends, not for self-promotion, not for selfish goals, but for the good of his wife and for the good of his family. And it is the job's wife to empower her husband to lead in that way. Let me give you a real-life example of what I mean. All right, this is a Dodge Vista. Isn't that a beauty? No, it's actually ugly. No, it's, that, I had that car. Um, that was our car. Um, it was ugly. Um, here's the deal. Let me give you a little bit of the story behind this. Um, we had the opportunity to purchase this car and I won't give you the full situation, but we had the opportunity to get this car at little cost to ourselves. I was looking at this from a very pragmatic and practical perspective saying, okay, this is a newer car than what we have. It's going to cost us very little to get a hold of. Um, I think frugality wins, Right. I think we, we do what we need to do to take care of the family. Lauren looked at it and said, that thing is ugly. I hate it. 
Um, she didn't like the circumstances that I was going to get it. There wasn't anything unethical or anything like that. She just, so she came to the table and was basically like, I don't think we should get this car. I don't like it. It's ugly. It's stupid. It's dumb. No, no. Right. And I'm like, no, I think we should. I think we should. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I pray about it. If I pray, you know, I say, we think we should do this thing. Right. I don't want to portray that we were like these perfectly mature people coming to the table. Um, you, can, you can fill in the blanks, all right? This is we're a young married couple trying to figure out how this, all this works, and it was pretty ugly at times. Um, but here's the deal. We discussed it. She gave her opinion. Uh, if you know my wife, she gives her opinion, right? Um, and I love her for that. She is, you know, I'm a strong personality. She is a strong personality. And I've never asked her to become weak. If anything, I want to see her empowered in her strength. And, and so she came to the table with her arguments and with her clarity, and it was an argument. You know, and, and at times, we had to repent to each other, right? At times, it got a little bit, like, too far into the argument where she wasn't respecting me and I wasn't loving her. And, and so, you know, I'll confess. Let's come back to the table and keep talking. It, there was no... We weren't going to find a compromise, Right? So we, so we had a few choices when we got to the end of this discussion. The first thing was I could just go like, okay, um, if I get this car, you're going to be unhappy with me? I don't want you to be unhappy with me. I'm going to espouse that, you know, we talked about it last week, that happy wife, happy life philosophy, right? If I make you happy, you're going to make me happy. So we won't get the car. What's the result of that? Well, first of all, I'm acting in a selfish way. I'm making a choice not based on what's best for my family. I'm making a choice on what's best for me. I think if I make you happy, you're going to make my life less uncomfortable. And since I'm really just about the path of least resistance, uh, I'm just going to make you happy. That's selfishness, right? That sacrifices the good of the family for selfish ends. And in the end, it never ends well because no matter how much I try to make you happy, I'm really just manipulative and your, your heart's going to know that. Your heart's going to know that you're not being loved well, and in the end, um, that just doesn't work, right? The other choice was if I moved forward and got the car, and Lauren chose to resent it. She got ticked, right? And she chose to hold it against me. I was looking for every opportunity to, to say, I told you so, or to rub my nose in it, or to somehow tell me how I, I failed, Right? Um, and so that, the, that this point of I chose to do what I thought was best for the family becomes this, this rift between us that actually destroys our, our intimacy, that hurts our oneness, that becomes this thing that, that is a painful place between us, right? Both of those options were in front of us. Um, thankfully, those aren't the, the, the directions we went. And, and Lauren and I talked about this. It's only by the grace of God that this story ended well and, and we had a wonderful um, it, it, we laugh about it now, but, you know, Lauren did choose to submit. She did choose to submit. But what I don't, you know, need to catch is this. She wasn't choosing to submit to me primarily. She was choosing to submit to God. She didn't trust me in this decision. She didn't think this was the best decision, but she trusted God, who was the authority over me. And in her submission to God, it gave her the freedom to act in submission to me. Trusting that God was greater than my choice. Who was Lauren ultimately trusting? Me or the God who was over me? God. That's the point. All authority comes from God. I mean, I love this, the way this verse reads. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, 
What a great word choice. The word Lord itself carries this idea that he has authority. He is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He is the sovereign over the whole universe. She chose to submit trusting in God more than me. And and honestly, she was also showing that she trusted God more than she trusted herself, which I think is even more challenging. For her to submit meant that, that she didn't just trust God more than me. It meant that she trusted God more than her own instinct to fight for what she thought was best at the cost of, of, of honoring God and of oneness in marriage. She chose to submit and trusted God with the outcome. So you guys are dying to know the end of the story. I know. <laughs> All right, I, we got the car, okay? We got the car. It turned out to be a piece of junk. Um, but literally it was a, it was, it was, it was an engineering nightmare. It was a newer car, but it was just poorly built. It was a piece of garbage. Um, and in fact, I had, I got a call from my wife one day. Um, she's like, Steve, um, I'm in the middle of an intersection. There was a clunk and we can't move in the middle of an intersection. I went down there it had dropped the axle. I mean, like the axle had dropped. I mean, I, I fixed it. The thing it kept shearing. It was, it was horrible. It was poorly built car. All right. Um, <laughs> you, you, got, you can't tell me that there wasn't a huge temptation for Lauren as she's sitting in the middle of the intersection to be like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you are such an idiot. I told you so, right? Right? To just shove my nose in it, right? To take that sinful pleasure of, of just being like, you should have listened to me. I am so much smarter than you. I'm so much better than you. I am so much. I would have made the right decision. You didn't make the right decision. You're an idiot. All of the, She would have never said those things. But you guys know as well as I do, you can say all those things without saying a word. Right? She could have done that. What would that have done to my heart? What would that have done to my ability to lead my family? What would have been done to my confidence in Christ to grow into the man that he had called me to be? I want you to see that there are devastating effects when we choose to operate in ways that don't honor Christ in our marriages. She didn't do that. She didn't do that. She wasn't happy. <laughs> and I knew that. Um, but you know what we did with that car is, is I sold it. I found a guy who loves these things. He had like three others. <laughs> Um, and, and he like collected these things. And so I sold it and I sold it for quite a bit more than we got it for. And so we were able to use the profit that I got from this car to buy another car. And that car turned out to be one of the best cars we had ever owned. So let me ask you something. Who was right? Who won? You want to know who won? We both did because it wasn't about who was right. It wasn't about who won. It wasn't about winning at all. We had an opportunity, a challenge in front of us to either move into more oneness or to let something divide that oneness, to move us into more intimacy or for something to push us away in pride and self-protection and in self-promotion. And God used that. We laugh about it today. She still thinks it was a bad idea. I still think it was a good one. But that event was a formative event in our marriage. Because God used it to introduce us to a greater experience of oneness and intimacy and trust. Submission is not about power. It's about relationship. It's not about who's right. 
It's about loving God and submitting to God and letting him work out the details as the greatest authority, as the one who knows it all, and trusting him and loving and respecting each other. Wives, by submitting to your husbands, you are submitting to God, the one who created you and the one who created your husband, so that you guys can experience his image together. All right, as we wrap up, I want to throw a few applications out there. And I want to talk to a specific audience here because the reality is submission is much easier when you have a husband who provokes respect. When you have a respectable husband, it's much easier to respect your husband, right? I mean, that seems like a pretty dumb statement, but it's true. Respect commands itself. When somebody is a respectable person, you almost can't help yourself but bring respect to the table for them because respect commands itself. What happens when your husband is not respectable? What happens when he's not leading? What happens when he isn't pursuing God's best for you or for himself and he hasn't for a long time? What then? What if you're married to an overgrown boy who is selfish, self-centered, determined on pleasuring himself, over loving you well? What do you do then? What do you do if you're married to a wicked man? A man who sins against himself, against God, and against you and would lead you into sin? What if you're married to a coward who's deathly afraid of leading and will not take the mantle of being like Christ in the family? What do you do if you're married to the bully? the one who cops out and hides behind the position instead of the relationship, constantly um, being a bully instead of calling to your heart to follow? What if you're married to a man that at one time you thought was attractive and clever and you now consider him stupid, inept, or foolish? I have a few principles for you. A few things that I think ultimately will be a blessing both to you and to your husband as you fight for your marriage. Because you're going to have to fight for your marriage. You've covenanted together with that man, with God. Uh, You want to know how you're married to the right person? You're married. That's the person you're covenanted together with. Right? Stupidity is not a reason for divorce. Of your heart, or of the marriage covenant. You need to fight for your marriage. I realize while I say that, there are some of you who are fighting for your marriages and it won't make it. I don't want you to hear that I'm condemning you in any way. God has grace for you and God will speak to your heart and love you even as you try to honor him as things are breaking up all around you. Life is a mess. I get that. But I want to talk to those of you who have the opportunity to fight for your marriage. What should you do? First of all, trust Christ. And submit your marriage to him. Trust Christ. And submit your marriage to him. You need to remember that first of all, you are being called to submit to God. And in submitting to God, you are trusting God with the outcome of that submission. You're primarily submitting to God and secondarily submitting to your husband. 
And I want you to hear this. For you to give up hope in your husband is a sign that you have given up trust in Christ. If you don't believe your husband can change, you have lost sight of the resurrection power of Christ. You can't change his heart. But God still can. Fill your vision with his love, his beauty, his power, and trust him. And as you trust him, submit your marriage to him. Stop trying to fix it on your own. Stop trying to fix it in your own power. Stop trying to manipulate or control or, or, or strong arm or, or protect your heart or whatever else it is that you're desperately trying to do. Submit your marriage to him and trust him because ultimately he has authority. You don't empower. You don't. Let God's love so overwhelm you as you look at his love for you that you are overwhelmed in gratitude to him so that you want to please him more than you want to protect yourself. And that in that, you will become free to once again honor your husband, even if he isn't honorable. Love God enough to submit to your husband. Love God enough to submit to your husband as long as it's not sin. And if your husband wants to lead you into sin, love God enough to not submit to your husband, but instead to submit to God, but doing it in such a way that you are communicating respect and honor to the man that you are covenanted together with. Trust Christ, submit your marriage to him. Secondly, give your husband the gift of respect. Like I said, it it is easy to give respect to a respectable man because respect commands itself. Some of you, and honestly all of you, at one point or another, are going to have to learn how to give the gift of respect. All men are broken. All men are flawed. All men are not what God is creating them to be. Not yet. So wives need to learn how to give the gift of respect. You may not feel it, but you can give it. So what does this look like in practical terms? How do you practically give the gift of respect? Well, it means you build him up instead of tearing him down. It means you strengthen him instead of weaken him. It means that you, you, you prop him instead of drop him, right? It means you don't badmouth him. Now, I'm not saying that you go into silence. If you're, if you're dealing with a husband that is struggling with a, a pornography addiction or if he is abusive or if he is... There, you, I'm not saying you become codependent and disappear into the shadows. You find help. You find healthy ways to process this. You get women in your life that you can pray with, confess with, be honest with, that will encourage you, strengthen you, uh, and, and speak truth to you, right? But that's a lot different than somebody who's simply walking around venting continually their resentment toward their husband. Don't badmouth him. I love a Christian practice of prayer requests, right? Hey, how can we pray? Well, you know, my husband, blah, 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 blah. Don't get good at confessing your husband's sins. That's not your job. Again, I'm not saying that you go into silence. There's a a group of people who will love you and support you, and that's tight community, right? You can be radically honest. You choose those people wisely because they will be people that speak truth to you and encourage you and, and, and hold you up in grace. But, but you don't continually find outlets to pour out your disappointment and anger and resentment toward him. Right? You don't run down your husband to your friends, to your mom, to your family, and even to yourself. You realize that, that what you tell yourself continually about your husband shapes the way you feel about your husband. Are you filling your vision with all of his faults? 
Are you filling your vision with all of your hurts? Are you filling your vision with everything he's done wrong? Or are you by grace submitting that to God and asking God to give you a vision of who your husband can become by the grace of God? So that you can relate to him in the grace of God instead of into the, in the reality of your resentment. Don't rehearse his shortcomings to others or to yourself. You know, this is one of those things that honestly I am, I am deeply thankful to my wife for. Um, I, I'm often not a great husband and, and have had to learn what it meant to be a husband. I, I wasn't, you know, I mentioned that. I'm not, I wasn't raised in a home where I had a great model. I didn't come into this with a, a great sense of, of what all this meant, and I was a mess. I have not always been a great husband, but I have always trusted my wife. That's a gift. Even when I failed, even when my failure was ugly, I knew I could trust her with my reputation, with my name, with my character. I never doubted because my wife wasn't the person running to to the public space, posting on Facebook, my every flaw, running into prairie groups and and laying out all my dirty laundry and, and continually displaying every, that just wasn't who she was. She chose to bring a tight circle of women around her who could support her and encourage her and give her wisdom. And then she chose to honor me. And her respect, this is what I want you to catch, her respect provoked me to love her more. Her vision of who I could become in Christ inspired me to become that person and still does. And this leads to the final point. Stop trying to change your husband. Stop trying to fix him. And instead, lead him. Stop trying to fix your husband. You can't do it. That's God's job. But you can lead him by cooperating with God. You can lead your husband to lead you by loving your husband, by honoring him. And we know what happens when we fall into the trap of trying to fix somebody. We become manipulative. We, we become resentful. We do the carrot and the stick. And, and it just destroys unity and oneness and intimacy. Right? It becomes manipulative. The only person you can change is you. I mean, that's just common knowledge. The only person you have the ability to change by the grace of God, not even in your own power, but by the grace of God is you. You can become more the wife that God has called you to be, but by becoming more the wife God has called you to be, you will, in fact, be leading your husband to become more the husband that God has called him to be. You can lead by submitting. Don't underestimate the power of your strength. Do not underestimate the power of the Spirit as you honor Him in your relationship. Because you can provoke with love 